Love Rice is powered by Bloom. And at Bloom, we're passionate about healthy relationships, personal growth, and the deepest kind of self-love. And with this in mind, we have created an online program for women who are seeking intention, authenticity, clarity, and ready to break through whatever's in your way. So log on to bloomforwomen.com with the promo code SCABS for 30 days free access to our Bloom Basic membership. Da, 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 da. All right. From Bloom, this is Scabs, and you're listening to Love Rise, a podcast about experiments in love and life and happiness. Today's podcast is packed. I mean, full of Midwestern meat and potatoes. Is that lame? That's <laughs> probably really lame. And we'll be talking with Dr. Brad Reedy. He's a licensed therapist and the owner and clinical director of Evoke Therapy Programs, which has a wilderness component to it. And it's for families and for teens and kids. And his recent book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, is the inspiration behind our conversation today. It's also the inspiration behind one of our recent Bloom online classes called Heroic Parenting. So we'll talk about parenting struggles. We'll talk about being hurt looking at our own darkness, compassion, how we see people, and even a few nerdy Star Wars references. But for me, this was not just about parenting. I learned a ton of new stuff about life. So let's get to it. When I listened to your class, I had this experience where I was saying no to someone and a light bulb went off in my head that that person never says, okay, and walks away. That person constantly pushes me until I apologize, give in, or whatever. So I kind of had this wake up moment in the class where you said you got to let, you got to set the boundary and let go of the outcome. I had this all kind of come together for me in a huge way this weekend. I mean, this is something I've been working on, you know, for years and years and years trying to figure out boundaries. Can, can you give me an idea of why you think boundaries are so difficult for us to grasp? I think, you know, the first thing that you said in your story was you recognize the pattern. And that's the first, that's, that's impressive and amazing. And congratulations. The, the second piece of that, the deeper piece, which is your question is, why, why is it important? Where do they come from? And, and really, it comes from a, a lack of self. I mean, that's the general answer. But more specifically, it, it comes often from our early context, from our early growing up. See, we learn, most of us learn from our parents that when they were upset, we did something wrong. That's how they parented us. They said, we're worried about you. We're frustrated with you. We're angry. We're disappointed. And the message was, you need to change so I feel okay. So from a very early age, this is so powerful. From a very, very early age, we learned that we were responsible for other people's feelings. And I won't go into it too much right now, but that's a feeling of shame. That, that means that if, if you care about me and I make you unhappy, then something's wrong with me. I'm bad. So, so there's shame in there, there's this responsibility, there's this lack of awareness. As we evolve in this process and do this work, we learn that we can show up authentically and honestly, and then we also learn that if people can respond to that with respect, it's not like everybody's happy with everything we do when we're living authentically, but if somebody that I care about says, this is not okay with me, and I try to push them to do the thing that I want them to do, I'm essentially saying to somebody I care, don't take care of yourself. I don't want you to be okay. I want you to do what I want. So there's a wonderful quote out of a, um, it's from my therapist who's written several books. It's, it's called The Letters of Juliet to the Knight in Rusty Armor. She talks about this idea that 
I don't set boundaries to fix you. Uh, the, the wife of the alcoholic husband doesn't leave him to get him to stop drinking. She leaves him because she can't tolerate that, that behavior and, and that a disease in her life anymore. If he stops, good for him. If he doesn't, he doesn't. And so I, I think we think of boundaries as I'm going to set a boundary to fix you or teach you something. I set a boundary to take care of myself, even with my children. And when I don't set a boundary, I end up feeling resentful, angry, and frustrated. So boundaries aren't about fixing other people. They're about self-care. And that's a huge shift for a lot of people because most people think, what do I need to teach my, my child? And this goes back to the, the whole essence of the class that I just taught, which is if I practice healthy self-care, if I practice healthy boundaries, if I say, this is what I'm comfortable with in our house, this is what I need to feel okay, and I'm going to assert myself in this way, my children magically respond to that. If I'm always trying to fix them because they're broken, I am also insinuating that they're, that they're broken and that something's wrong with them and that my anxiety needs to be managed by them so they need to get in line with me. So boundaries aren't about fixing other people, but it's about being whole and okay. And it comes from the wound in childhood that we have that we were told that we were responsible for other people's feelings and that if we made somebody unhappy that something was wrong with us. And that's, that's really precious and core to who we are. In the end, often people are taught wonderful things like the story you told at the beginning of our conversation about your friend. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that is exactly kind of what I woke up to, which it did take a lot of mental effort to not apologize and to hang up the phone and not feel bad that this person was angry. That friend that you described, that person you described who has this pattern, they don't accept no for an answer. If you start to, and you know this, if you start to say no as a complete sentence, they're either going to adjust and be inspired by that and come to you in a, in a, in a, in a better way, or they're going to not want to be around you because they only want to be around people who do what they want no matter what. That's why it's, it's a heroic journey is because this is hard. This is painful, and it requires us to go deeper into ourselves to figure out what's in the way of our truth, what's, in the, what, what's blocking us. And the fact of the matter is it has nothing to do with anybody else. So after I set this boundary, I knew I had to talk to my daughter because she was witness to what had happened. Right. And I knew I had to say, this is not okay. And that was a really hard conversation to have. Um, and then I felt this like euphoria, kind of like, I feel really happy and free of whatever that person's reaction is going to be. And, um, and I let it go. And a couple of days later, you know, I had another interaction with that person that was just fine. Another thing that I, I like about your story is that, you, you know, my class is on parenting mm -hmm. and you, you watched it and, and were listening to it. And then it resonated with you in a, another relationship that wasn't the parenting relationship. The challenge in parenting is not about children. The challenging in parenting are, are the wounds and issues we bring to it. And so I love that you found it to generalize to other relationship. Uh, right now I have children from the age of eight to 22. I, I have four children spread out that far. And people always say to me, well, it doesn't apply to young children or it doesn't apply to 24-year-olds. And I'm, I'm thinking it applies to everybody. I, I've seen myself and my wife debate with our three and four-year-old about the, the justification for a timeout, right? So <laughs> right. it's the same thing that, that you're describing with yeah. your friend. When you get out of having to be right, when you get out of having to um, – make it okay for them and for you and just set the boundary and then face the, the, the scary thing that boundaries bring up for you, then you, you, you have that feeling that you described and you get free of it. And, and then you give them a chance to show up and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't.
And that's the part that resonated with me. That was the part that you said, you got to let go of the outcome, like know what you want, know what you need for yourself, set it and let go of what happens. Right. And this is a question I hadn't asked myself because I don't view myself as a controlling person. Right. But I realized what, (laughs) what I was trying to control in that relationship. So talk to me a little bit about control with children in relationships, you know, in that, in that sense. You know, I, I think the first thing that I realized years ago was how coercive we are as parents, you know, how we use guilt and, and shame and intimidation to try to change our children. And, and, and part of this is, is in the families that I was watching and, and treating, but part of it was I recognized it in my own life. I recognize that sometimes that the shortest distance between what I want and getting it is to manipulate my children emotionally. And it was much, much more difficult for me and for families to set a clear boundary and, like you said, let go of the outcome. Um, and families, when I talk to them about that, they, they hear me say, be passive. When I say let go of the outcome, they, they hear me say, be passive, don't do anything. The fact of the matter, and I, tell, I talk about this in the class, if I'm letting go of the outcome, I'm more honest. If I'm letting go of the outcome, I'm more active. And, and what that also leads to is I found over the years, permissive parents are more controlling. Permissive tr- parents try to manipulate and try to coerce and try to debate and try to argue. Assertive parents or influential parents, they're more assertive. They're more clear. In the long run, they end up being more influential to the people in their lives, to the children in their lives. But but that it's, it's just a hard transition to make because we associate permissiveness with a, a, a lack of control and we associate strictness with a lot of control and the fact of the matter is and I've seen the students respond to it in our program because our program is strict in terms of its its rules but but our children young adults and adolescents say this is the freest I've ever felt in my life because they're allowed to feel and think what they want and they just have boundaries and limits and consequences but there's no emotional overlay to all of that there's no shame and guilt and fear and intimidation over that So this is a concept I really want to explore with you. So when you say, you know, being permissive means you're more controlling, can you give some examples of of what you mean by this? Yeah, there's somebody I talk about in the book, and this was from my practice years ago. I was treating a a young woman with an eating disorder, uh, and they had been to UCLA, the Center for Change in Orem, Utah, great programs, really prestigious treatment teams and therapists they'd worked with. And I was a relatively young therapist. So we were going through the family therapy. I, I was doing outpatient therapy at the time. And at one point, uh, several sessions in, I started to suggest some boundaries, some boundaries around the young woman's potassium level. If she had a certain potassium level, which was associated with bulimia, then she could be on the cheer squad. If she didn't, then she couldn't. And I also said, how about if she maintains her weight, she can drive, drive her, you know, certain privileges, drive her car, uh, you know, go out on the weekends, things like that. Uh, I started to kind of set up examples of boundaries. And the mother interrupted me and she said, no, Brad, you don't understand. I know you're new to this, but we've been to UCLA. We've been to these wonderful programs and we've learned that eating disorders are about control. And 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 so we can't do this because this is going to trigger the control. And I paused and, and, and to quote the mother, I said, I don't, I'm not talking about control. I think controlling is when you tell her she's disgusting or when you tell her that no boy is ever going to love her if she doesn't get rid of this ugly disease or when you tell her you would have never done this to, to her mother. I said, that's controlling. But setting boundaries and, and letting her make choices and then you following through on, on the consequences, that's not controlling because it's a win-win for you. If she does what you hope that she'll do, she's healthy. If she doesn't, then she has a consequence that's related to it 
and a boundary that you feel comfortable with. So in, in a more subtle example, it's like when you're trying to get your young children to eat their vegetables. Most parents say, if you eat your vegetables, you can have a treat later, right? That, that's okay. But what happens, what do we, what most, most, do most parents do? They say, if you eat your vegetables, you can have a treat afterwards. And then we pause and we see them playing with their vegetables and we say, okay, <laughs> it's your favorite ice cream. I'm going to eat it all. Look at your big brother. Look, he's eating. So we try to get the outcome instead of saying, it's a win-win. If you eat your vegetables, you can have a treat. If you don't eat your vegetables, you can't have a treat. And that's the difference between controlling parents, controlling the outcome, and assertive, influential parenting, which lets go of the outcome, but, but gets in the end a win-win, win on either side of the equation. So I'm really fascinated kind of by this idea of emotion and how the emotion that we overlay or underlay on our comments and, you know, conversations with our children does in fact send this controlling message. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, I had a student one time and he came to me, heroin addiction. Uh, He was, he threatened suicide. And and I believed at the time that the threat to to kill himself was a a manipulation to try to get me or or his parents to remove him from the program. It was very scary. Yeah. Suicide is real and it's, it's possible. (laughs) Um, and, and so he was, he was struggling so much with the boundaries and the limits and the structures in the process. Um, as we moved through the program, he opened up. A lot of healing occurred. Eventually, his mother decided to take him home. The, the, I had recommended that he go on to a sober living environment, but for various reasons, she was unable to do that. And I remember him saying to her at, at our graduation ceremony, I remember him saying, I'm so disappointed that I'm coming home, which was completely ironic and surprising to her. And he said, I've never felt so free and I've never done something so easy in my life. And his mother was completely confused. And she said, why is that? And she said, because I didn't have to take care of anybody but myself. When I got mad at the staff, they were okay with it. When I was frustrated with the staff, they didn't try to talk me out of it. They didn't need me to, to like them or be happy. And so I could just be myself. The boundaries in the structure, that took a while to adjust to. And I always say, children can adjust to various levels of structure. What they can't adjust to is this dynamic between parent and child where a parent needs a child to feel, think, believe, subscribe to a certain philosophy for the parent to feel okay. Because that's the thing that sets up, you know, that that story you told at the beginning of our discussion, that's the wound that you and I have that prevents us from setting boundaries with people. And so it it, it affects our whole life. So part of the idea of, of consequences, structure, of control is we have to learn how to show up. We have to learn how to recognize the other and, and keep our distance. And it's really hard for us parents because the wounds we bring into this from our own childhood, we try to repair in, in the relationship with our children. Alice Miller, the wonderful author of Journey of, of uh, the Drama of the Gifted Child, says, we're trying to ward off something that already happened to us. We're trying to prevent being abandoned by our children. And that abandonment already occurred in our own childhood. And so we're using our children. Uh, and we don't know this. It's not conscious. We're using our children to heal something in us. And that brings up a whole bunch of undifferentiation and control in the relationship. So my son, here's another story, personal story. My my son has really been struggling just with how he's been feeling about the divorce the last few months, you know, right. as he should. And uh, he's a seven-year-old? He's a seven-year-old, right. And he says to me the other day, and this is after I listened to your class, so I think I, I was like better prepared for this. But he says, Mom, I hate you 50% of the time. The other 50%, I love you. But 
do you know why? And, you know, I kind of nod my head because I think I know why. And he says, yeah, it's because of you and dad. And so, you know, it's, it was my gut reaction, right? It's like, Oh, what? (laughs) You know, but I think after trying to get a little bit of what you're saying here in this class is my reaction was, was just to say, I know, I'm sorry. Right. Sucks. You, you deserve to be angry. Right. You deserve to be, you know, (laughs) you know, the, the, we have a we have an assignment in our program. I, I've given this assignment outside of our program, where we ask children to write what we call an impact letter to their parents, which is a letter that basically says, "Here's all the things you did that hurt. Here's all the ways you you failed me. Here's all the ways that I felt injured by you." And the essence of the response that we coach parents to take is, "Thank you for telling me." I mean, they can talk about it was hard at first and that initial you know punch in the gut reaction. Mm-hmm. I've had that with my children, but. What I, lo- I, I I pictured your seven year old son saying that to you, and I was thinking, that is so so good for him to be able to say that to you, and I'm so happy for him that you were able to hold that for him and and allow that to be because that's the thing that's going to help him to heal and to be okay. If he needs to take care of you, he's going to really really struggle. If he needs to love you so that you feel okay, mm-hmm. and that's really reversing the, the order of parenting, then he's going to be confused about relationships the rest of his life. You know, I, I thought about that exact thing because my maybe, you know, natural reaction would be like, well, you know, that's not nice or maybe you should or I tried this or blah, 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 you know, trying to give myself an excuse for why that shouldn't be or that he should, you know, love me 100 percent. Right. And and um, and, and I think exactly what you said, just just letting him have that and taking the emotion out of it for me right. just to know it wasn't. It it wasn't, I mean, hateful. I guess is what I'm right. trying to say. But that was a really powerful moment for me. And you know, and and then since then, he'll tell me. So it's just been a couple of days. He'll say, "So, mom, today I feel like I only hate you ten percent." Or <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm getting a graded scale. Then you know, mom, I feel like I hate you today, maybe thirty, you know, thirty <laughs> percent or whatever it may be. But it's been. I think really good for him, just like you said, to feel sure to feel and to do that. So I don't know. It's been it's been fascinating to kind of have this class and then have these experiences. That's really cool. Nice job. Well, you know, <laughs> I try to I try to soak it in, but you know, who knows? It reminds me of a story I had when I was finishing the last edits of my book. I went with my wife and my youngest child, who at the time I think was five or six, and. um we were in Los Angeles and they would go out and have fun during the day while I worked. And then at night we would do things together and we'd sleep and have breakfast in bed. Then they, they would go out and have fun. And I remember we were cuddling the three of us in bed and my youngest child at the time said, you know, she has three older siblings. She said, I wish my three older siblings were dead. And I wish it was just us that we could just be together, just the three of us. And of course, almost every parent's instinct, including mine would be, you know, trying to somehow smooth that over and point out, well, they're, they're, you know, we love them too. And look at all the things they give to you. And I just said, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be great if it was just us, just the three of us, we could give you all this attention. We could go on trips like this all the time. And she said, yeah. And then she paused and she said, but I would miss them. And Emma's like my best friend. And she went on to talk about all the positives because when I resonated with her, when I could hold that, Right when I could hold that piece of her, 
she could be okay. She could heal. But if I needed that piece of her to go away for my own comfort, which is what it would be for, then she wouldn't be heard. She wouldn't get through it. And she would likely begin to harbor this resentment that was in, unvalidated um, and she couldn't heal it. Yep. I think, I think I love that idea. It's something that I, I now just kind of am waking up to and I really want to embrace that with my kids, especially during this time frame that we're going through. Sure. You know, um, so I want to talk a little bit more. Something else you said in the class, there was a, a quote and I hope I get it right. I wrote down, um, if you're not trying to control someone, you can almost never do it wrong. If you're trying to control someone, you can almost never do it right. Right, right. You know, the, the, my favorite story about that is also in my book where I had this family where young adult from Canada, dad was coming to pick him up. He wrote his dad a very respectful letter requesting a certain brand of cigarettes that they sell in Canada that they don't sell in the United States. And he even said to his dad, if you feel uncomfortable bringing it, that's fine. But his dad knew that he smoked. He knew at the sober living environment that he was going to go to after our program that they allowed for smoking. So that was all, that wasn't, it wasn't a question, but the dad called me and said, what do I do? Should I bring them or not? And again, I never answered the question about what should you do because that's not the right question. I said, well, I can imagine you coming with those cigarettes and giving it to your son and saying, you know, my father died of cancer. You know how I feel about how I feel about smoking. But this is me telling you that this is not, not my responsibility. It's not my job. And I said, I could also imagine you showing up at graduation for, you know, while you're driving your son saying, you know, whether you smoke or not is not my responsibility, but I am not going to participate in buying and transporting the cigarettes. That's your responsibility. And I don't want to have anything to do with that, but it's not my, it's not my, it's not my business at this point. And what I was illustrating with that kind of counter example is it doesn't matter what you do. It matters why you do it. If I do something with you, Jenny, to try really wonderful, but I'm trying to get you to do something, that's not love. That's just an unspoken contract. But if I give you a gift of love, of, of compassion, of care, and I expect nothing in return, that's real love. And so it's always the motive. It's always why we do it. If I'm doing it to try to control you, it has all kinds of strings attached, and, and it can never be right. And if I'm just doing something that's authentic, compassionate, loving, clear, articulate, you can go down those list of virtues and, 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 and healthy motivations. If I do it from that place, I can't do it wrong because that's what defines the right and wrongness, if you will, of a certain act in relationship. It, it comes from Immanuel Kant, the philosopher. So this is literally centuries old where he said, the definition of the right, he said, is if you treat mankind, others, as an end instead of a means to an end. That's how you define the rightness of something. And codependent people, people that try to control people, people that get wrapped up in all these dynamics that we're talking about of manipulation, they're not, they're not doing things as an end. They're doing them as, as a means to an end. And you can't get it right. And it ends up really, really messing with our relationships with everybody, especially our children. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of us don't really even know we're, do we're doing that. I think when we hear the word uh, codependency, a lot of us recoil like, you know, like that's not me kind of a thing. And um, it's been so this this comment that you said and the story about it not being about the action has been something I've thought a lot about too, because of another therapist that I interviewed, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, said something where she said, whatever it is you decide to do, as long as you can back that up in yourself, right. like thumbs up, 
you know? And, and this, this kind of speaks to that for me because a lot of women that are in crisis and trauma, and it's like you said, this, this moves beyond just our relationships with our children. So in our relationships with our spouses, our ex-spouses, our parents, our siblings, our friends, whatever it may be, um, they always ask, or we always ask, what do I do? How do I do it? Should I do this? Should I do that? Right. Yeah, that that's the that's the most common question, especially as, as a parent coach, as a parent educator. I get that question all the time. And, and, and in my book, which is where this series of classes comes from, I start off by saying the question of what to do is not the question. The question is, first, who are you? That's the first question to answer. And when you answer that question, you have then the capacity to answer the question, who is the other? Who is the child? Who is the spouse? Who is the other? And then the third question is, what's my relationship to the issue, to the problem, to their problems? And when we can answer all those questions, and this came from my own workshop that I went to uh, years ago, where I went in there trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my marriage. And, and you know, that's the, we all, all the people that came to this workshop, we asked the question, you know, what, what, what am I going to do? What do I want to do? What should I do? And, and they, don't, they don't let you ask that question for the first six days of the workshop. They let you ask it the last two days. But by the time that came around, I didn't have the question anymore because I knew what I wanted. I knew why, I, why that question of what I wanted was so elusive to me. I knew what got in the way of answering that question. I, I knew that doing the thing that I needed to do for myself was going to be scary and the possible ramifications of it would be painful. And here's the, the most important thing I could say. What I decided to do in my marriage, I didn't decide whether I would get divorced or not. I decided to tell the truth more often about what I felt and what I thought. And I'd spent the first 15 years of our marriage not telling the truth because I was trying to make her happy. I was trying to manage her anxiety. I was trying to make her not upset. That's what I thought my job was. I had this crazy thing mm -hmm. that I thought I was responsible for her anxiety. When I started to practice, and that, that came from my wounds that we've talked about already. When I learned that I just had to tell the truth and the most amazing thing happened, my wife started to tolerate the truth. And she started to realize that it was her job to take care of herself. So th this, this way of being in relationship really does come down to the relationship with yourself first. And it, it is a new way of, of looking. And that's why these crises with betrayal or these crises with the children that I work with that get into drugs or have mental health problems, that is the thing sometimes, the only things that will compel us to develop this new way of being in the world. Because if everything's going well and comfortable enough, we don't challenge. We don't challenge what we're doing. We don't challenge what we're thinking. We just go along because it's working well enough. And that's why th this being shoved into this new way, this new way of having to think often comes only in crisis. You know, it, it is a huge paradigm shift because, and as you probably see, I mean, some of us move into the victim mode or, you know, blaming that kind of stuff. So I wanted to know when you talked about the question about uh, who are you, Tell me a little bit about your experience answering that question for yourself. You know, I'll start at the surface and then I'll go deeper. Who am I is what do I want? What do I think and what do I feel? It's my truth, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, the first barrier that gets in the way of that is other people telling me what I should think and feel and believe. That's the first barrier. But, but the deepest part of that is who I was as a child. My mother told me this is the sweetest thing. A few years ago, my mother told me, I was driving her back to the airport after she spent some time with our family, and she said, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. And I said, what for? And she said, you were too big for me when you were little. I, I didn't know what to do with you. And I, I knew I had that experience. I knew something about me was 
wrong. That's what I thought because what I was was scary to my mother and anxiety producing and frustrating for her. So as a child, the only sense you can make out of that is something about me is wrong. So who I am is, is this wonderful little child. But this wonderful little child showed up in the world and he was too much for his mother and his father. And so they tried to get him to be smaller and to fit within the bandwidth that they had available to themselves. And I only internalized that as a child. That's all children do, do is something's wrong with me. And then when I went out into the world and, and other compromised people with, with small bandwidths reacted to me, then I assumed something was wrong and bad about me and I second-guessed myself. And so it took a lot of work to get in touch with that process, to get in touch with that little child and to say, you know, what I think and feel about, about church or, you know, about politics or about chocolate ice cream is okay. And if other people have a problem with it, it's not about me. And that's my work. I go to therapy. I've been going to the same therapist for 17 years now. And all I do is show up. I tell her what, what's going on, what I think and feels. And she says to me, that makes sense. I get it. And then I feel found. I know I'm okay. And then whatever symptoms are in my life, I don't need them anymore because I'm okay. So I don't need to act out or to, to find these other ways to meet these needs because I'm allowed to show up in, in at least one place a week completely for one hour and I'm okay. And then I can start to generalize that to the rest of the world and, and realize that when I show up in the world and people have a, a hard time with me, it's not about me. Yeah. So like, uh, can you give me an example of what you do when someone pushes back on that? On, on that? Yeah. On that sense of you. You know, when you I mean, say you go back into the world, well, not everyone's always happy when we go back into the world, right? Right. Well, I'll give you a couple of ways I respond. In my less enlightened moments, I argue with them and I prove that I'm right. Right. <laughs> that's what I do. Or I, I shut down and I walk away or I develop a bunch of hatred toward them to protect myself mm -hmm. from their projection. That's what I do when I'm not grounded. When I'm okay, I see them. I see their wounds. When somebody, when somebody walked up to Gandhi at the end of his life, and called him an idiot. He said, I'm so sorry, I must have hurt you. Tell me more about it. See, when I am whole, I can see you. When I am not whole, and you have a reaction to me, a feeling about me, I think it might be about me and I need to defend it. I used to give this example. If somebody walked up to Gandhi and, and called him an idiot, what would he say? And I give the example that, you know, from his life where he would just apologize and try to listen to them. If somebody walked up to Tupac, the rapper, for example, for example, who's, who's dead now, but if somebody walked up to him and said, you're an idiot, what would he do? And the answer would, part of his crew would probably shove you against the wall and push yeah. you out of the way. <laughs> and so it's about wholeness. When In the moments that I'm whole, and if you're mad at me, Jenny, if you get upset with me, if my seven-year-old gets upset with me and I'm okay, I just see you. If I'm not okay and my wounds are, are, are flaring up and I'm in a aggressive or a depleted moment and you're upset with me, I do all kinds of stuff to make that go away. Yeah, don't we? <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the second question that you gave me. You said the who is the other. Okay. So and maybe you've kind of already kind of covered that here in this last question that I asked when you see somebody. Right. It is that. You know, there's a great book many people have read called um, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And one of the agreements that he invites us to live in our life is, is that to not take it personally. And he gives the example. He said, if somebody comes up and punches you in the face using an extreme example, it's not about you. And if somebody comes up to you and says, I think you're the greatest person in the world, it's not about you. So if, if I've answered the question of who I am, who I am, who am I? 
and I'm clear about it. And I have that circle clearly. Imagine me standing on the ground with a, with a circle of chalk drawn around me. And that's me, all of my truth, what I feel, what I think. If that circle is broken or meanders, then when I engage with somebody else, I'm not sure if I'm seeing me or them, right? I'm not mm -hmm. sure if their anxiety is my anxiety or where it's coming from or, or what I'm responsible for. All those questions are unclear. But if I answer the question or in the moments I'm clear about the question and I engage in a relationship with my seven-year-old, with my eight-year-old, with my 45-year-old wife, whatever it is, then I can hear them. I can empathize. I can often apologize. I can be sensitive and compassionate. I don't need to defend anything because it's not about me. It's, and I love the part about an admiration too because I've learned this in my work. There are clients who, of course, are incredibly grateful and have great admiration for their therapist. I have that same feeling for my therapist. And what I've learned is the reason they have that for me is because they see pieces in me that are them. They love me. They admire me because they have it. Otherwise, they wouldn't love it and admire it if they didn't have it. And so when you learn about yourself, you see other people. You see other people very, very clearly. And, and that's what enlightened minds do is they're able to, to see people clearly, to listen to them, to hear them, to not react to them. And, and that's the, the evolution of this, this knowledge of self, knowledge of others. Does this translate to what we're seeing in the world? You know, so many, I mean, violence has always been part of what the world has, is, but I think people are feeling it now in a new or heavier way, it seems. Right. What, what is your feeling on all of that with, in this context? Wow. Um, that, that's a, that's a tough that's question. A heavy question. <laughs> There's so much going on in the world. There is. I, I wrote, I wrote an op-ed piece about, you know, some of the gun violence that's been going on. And I started off talking about the story that, that, that we see with this young, alienated, uh, disenfranchised young man, often not always men, but often men, uh, who feels powerless, who feels like he doesn't have a voice. And then he goes out, he has access to, to weapons that can do a lot of damage. And he goes out in the world and, and wrecks havoc in the world and, and it hurts so many people. And I conclude that opening paragraph with saying, you know, that, that might sound like a lot of the headlines we read, but it's the story of Star Wars. It's the story of the most recent Star Wars. And so we know that story. We actually paid millions of people went to see that movie because they know that story. And so what this kind of work does, when I see somebody do something, if somebody did something really like that to my family, I, I think I would lose my capacity to see them. But having some distance, when I look out at the world and see these horrendous things that are happening, I can see the pain. I can see the hurt. I can see the disenfranchisement. Martin Luther King said that, that rioting is the, the language for the, for the unheard. And so when you are able to see, that's why the solutions to these problems, and the Buddha said this, that hatred does not cease by hatred, only by love. That's the eternal rule. What we need on all sides of it is more and more compassion. But to have compassion for somebody that does such hurtful things requires us to feel a lot of pain. Right. Mm -hmm. And then going back to Star Wars, I always use this example because it goes back to the, the, the first part of our conversation. Darth Vader and Yoda, best examples. Darth Vader became Darth Vader after what happened. If you go back yeah, to the, the I remember episode. that. I just watched those recently, my seven year old, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. He his his wife with the twins, right? She dies. His she legs dies. get chopped off. Right. He gets into a fight with his best friend. Right. He felt pain as, you know, like you said, the first thing, the one that he, he had already lost, lost his mother as a child. So it was, it was cumulative for him, right? He had a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. He hurt and he made a decision. I'm not going to hurt again. And my solution to hurting is I'm going to control everybody and everything. He had a good motive. 
in the sense that he didn't want to feel pain. Most of us can identify with that. Mm-hmm. The way of going about it, of course, was was insane. But his his idea was, I can make the the universe, you know, safe and and, and painless, and it, it can have order to it. And then I contrast that with Yoda. What happened when Yoda experienced pain? And the answer was he cried. And so going back to what's happening in the world and what's happening in all of our lives, in our families, in our homes, and in in the news is that people are in pain. And for us to hate them and to judge them and and to think of them in that kind of two-dimensional way, that doesn't solve anything on, on any side of the equation. So my practices... My practice as a therapist, as a human being, and what I, I try to do is no matter what anybody does to anybody, including me, my practice is to have compassion and understanding of them. Um, and, and so that's going to be the solution. I went and heard the Dalai Lama speak the other day, and he was saying the same thing, that that's the solution to this problem. But most of us are responding the way that Darth Vader did, by more control, by more anger, by more rage. Most of us are responding with more hatred because that distances us from our pain and our sense of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. But the spiritual revolution that needs to happen in this world won't come through those avenues. It will come through this kind of this compassion, this willingness to feel, this willingness to evolve to a new sensibility. Mm. So I think about this a lot in my own life because currently I might be what some consider a man hater. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, um, I think I'm cutting it off because I've been hurt, you know, right. I mean, it's a process and a phase, but I, I, I see it a little bit at the moment. So you're talking about compassion through all the uglies of, you know, all the sides of, of people and what they may or may not be doing. And so, and, and I know we've talked about personal development, but I want to talk about that a little bit more. And I know you talked about that in your class also with self-development and you said it yourself here when you said, who are you? I mean, that seems like, from what you're saying to me, is the key to compassion. To, right. The key to be able to give compassion in all circumstances. You know, a friend of, a friend of mine did something extraordinarily hurtful to me some time ago. Uh, me and a couple of other people. And it was intentional, and it was vicious, and it was very hurtful. And um, I was at a point in my life where... <clears throat> The minute he did what he did, I just didn't have any hatred for him. I had compassion for him. I knew he was hurting and in pain. And I was I was talking to another friend sometime after that who, who was also the subject of some of that same um, hurtfulness that he had, had exhibited. And she was saying to me, you're a better person than me. And I said, I, I don't think that that's the case. The difference is, is that I've spent a lot of time looking at my own darkness. And so I either have to hate him and me or I have to have compassion for both of us, and I'm not willing to hate myself. Carl Jung said, the best method for understanding the darkness of others is to understand your own darkness. And I could give you a hundred quotes about that. Um, Jesus said, you know, look at the, the, the beam in your own eye and, and, and instead of the moat in the other person's eye, and on and on and on. The Dalai Lama said that, that knowing one of your own faults is worth more than knowing a thousand faults in somebody else. The work, the compassion comes from when we come into contact with our own darkness, with our own limitations, with our own mistakes, we have compassion for others. And that compassion doesn't rob us of our boundaries. I don't let child abusers in my home to play with my children, right? Mm-hmm. I don't allow that to happen. I don't have to hate them to do that, though. So my answer to the question about where I've been successful at demonstrating compassion is I've screwed up as much as anybody that I know. 
And I either have to hate that about myself or I have to come to terms and love myself because I want to be alive and I want to be happy. And when I can do that, when I can do that work and it took a lot of time and a lot of therapy, then why would I be mad at you for your wounds? Because the only thing that causes you to be mean or cruel is a wound. And so as a therapist, why would I be mad at somebody for their narcissism? Why would I be mad at some of them, somebody for their sociopathology? Why would I be mad at somebody for their borderline behaviors? I'm mad at them for being wounded and not having the capacity to heal those wounds. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'll say one thing. What you said about yourself. If somebody came in and hurt my children, I, I don't know that I can have the capacity to do what I'm describing right now. So we all have a limit to that capacity. That doesn't mean it's not an ideal to strive for. It just means that we have compassion on ourselves when we fall short and we realize that there's more transformation and enlargement to, for, us to, for us to go through. People talk about forgiveness a, a lot and I hear people who give guidance around forgiveness. I never tell anybody to forgive anybody. Um, I, I would talk to them about why forgiveness is hard. I would talk to them about how not forgiving somebody protects them like you're talking about with yourself. But then I would have compassion on that. If somebody's struggling with forgiveness, for me, I can just only speak for myself. The answer is to just forgive them. The answer is to look at what's going on inside of me and understand how the non-forgiveness is protecting me and then to have compassion on that. And then by having compassion on that, I can heal. But I think a lot of the shoulds that we get told in life about what we should do, we should forgive people, that just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for a lot of my clients. And it's not very hard to know, to hear all the shoulds in the world. But I would have, speaking to you specifically, the, the man-hating phase that you're playfully but seriously talking about with yourself, I would say, I get it. And I can hear your pain. And I would not encourage you to move through that any faster than you're able. And I would want you to know that it makes perfect sense. My therapist said this to me. She, what she was saying is, with compassion, everything heals. With judgment and should and must and have to, nothing heals. We can, we can reduce symptomology, but we don't really heal, heal the core piece of it. If you have a wall around you and your wall is called man-hating right now, and I just start pulling down the bricks of your wall, what is going to be yours or anybody's inclination to do in that circumstance? Yeah, shut it down and run away. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if I honor your wall, if I'm gentle with your wall, if I respect your wall, you might begin to feel the safety to take a brick down yourself. But tearing down people's walls, which by the way, is not therapy and is the easiest thing to do and lay people do it and new therapists do it and new parent educators do it. They use labels and diagnoses and terms and, and techniques to try to pull down people's walls because they haven't developed the capacity that therapy requires. They just engage people's resistance. But when you can honor and embrace and be patient and not need the client to pull down the wall or the child to pull down the wall, then they can feel safe. Then they know that you're taking care of yourself. And then they can know that you're a trustworthy person to, to, to entrust you with them. And so they'll begin to take down their walls. Therapy and parenting is about enlarging one's capacity. This comes from a psychologist named James Hollis, where he talks about uh, marriage is about transformation. It's not about a lifelong love affair. It's about transformation, which comes from sacrifice and pain. And, and, and also Gandhi talks about that, that to love the lovable is easy. Going home is easy. But, but it's heroic to love an other's otherness. And so as a therapist, what I've been teaching is therapy isn't about the labels and the rules. It's my ability to hold you in my mind with love. In my book, I talk about 
Children's inner voice, their critical inner voice that develops, it's not from what you say to them, it's from what you think about them. That's a high bar to put out there. And so the way I think about you, Jenny, the way I think about my own children, my own friends, my colleagues, my wife, that's what that's the message that gets communicated to them. And that's why all of this about techniques and, and, and controlling and manipulating children doesn't work. Because I have to change the way I think about you, the way I hold you in my mind. And when I can do that with love and compassion, then you can heal. That sounds like magic. It is like it. It's like a Jedi. <laughs> I love it. Learn more about Dr. Brad Reedy and the work that he does with families and kids at evoketherapy.com. And I really like his philosophy page tab. So thank you all for listening and we'll be back soon. Also, I would like to give Jay Bud some production credit at the end here, but no doubt he'll cut it out.